Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 72. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. So yes, hello and welcome to the After Party Nebula Awards. All seven stories out in one day. The old Starship Sofa got it right. Everyone went out and I was actually quite a little bit nervous putting them all out. You know, I, I was thinking, the list going to work? And it was a new site, you know, a new server and everything like that. But they went out and they went out great. I will tell you all about it in the editorial. So thank you for joining me this week. So yes, we put out the Nebulas, all seven of the Nebulas for the best short story. And like I say, I was chuffed a bit. Everything kind of worked fine and what a great response I've had. Do you know what I mean? It's just been amazing. We got picked up on Boing Boing, we got picked up on IO9. I got, it sounds quite rude, I got Twittered left, right and centre. All sorts, you know, picked up on other people's blogs. Amazing, do you know what I mean? Thousands and thousands of downloads, just totally awesome. And I mean, that's great for Starship Sofa as well. And on the very same, or around that same week, last week, we got mentioned in kind of one of the biggest sci fi magazines in England. I think it might be SFX, might go all over the world, to be quite honest, I'm not too sure. Four and a half stars out of five, the top one, do you know what I mean? So chuffed a bit with that. But show we've got today is fantastic i'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show 
We have an editorial by my good self telling you all about what's happened with the Starship Sova, where we're going. Yes, a little update on that. Portry by G.O. Clark. We have that dark master, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh, with Hyperion Part 2. Main fiction tonight comes from Karen Joy Fowler. We have Amy H. Sturgis with a little review of The Machine Stops. And finally, at the end of the show, we have new titles. So jumping straight into the editorial, a lot to mention in the editorial. I don't want to kind of really do a waffle too much, which I'm normally used to. But have you seen the new site? Yes, Starship Sova has been reborn. You know, the cocoon has come off now. We are now a fully fledged, fantastic new site. And it's down to two people there. This, you know, get it all. Well, actually three, because Chris helped set the whole thing up if you remember. But Gareth and Kate have been instrumental in kind of getting this, you know, Gareth, think of Gareth now as the grease monkey of, you know, call them spanners of Starship Sova. If there's a kind of technically problem sort of thing, Gareth, what the hell's an RSS? Gareth sorts that out. But then Kate came along and Kate, I got a text, actually I got, it was a Skype chat message and I got a little message off Kate and it just said at the beginning, I've been a very bad girl. Looks <laughs> like a forty-two-year-old. You know, you went like, "Oh, excuse me, Vicar, what's going on here?" Kate just showed us this. You know, like this kind of like a skin for the new site. What well, that's what actually we've got up there now, and brilliant, loads faster. It's just stunning looking. So if you haven't seen the new Starship Sofa site, pop over, you know, and have a look at it. It is just lovely to be quite honest. Which leads me into. The site as well, we have also got a new show coming. Because we're on this kind of fancy new site there now, actually we can do stuff. I've now decided to start one of these things that I wanted to start for a long time, like a new show on, on actually, like a new RSS feed. So you could say it's got its own website. It is just really starshipsofa.com slash sofanauts. And what is sofanauts? Well, sofanauts is hopefully going to come out once a week, on a sad day probably, where it's... Has anyone listened to This Week in Tech or, say, something like Mac Break Weekly, where they just... Once a week, they just talk about and discuss things that have happened in the kind of technical side. This is Leo Report and a few friends. Just talk about what's been going on. Well, all I'm doing is kind of stripping that idea and just moving it over onto the kind of Starship Sova. And anything that's happened in science fiction that week... I'm going to be joined by different guests every, hopefully every time, you know, and sometimes we'll get returning guests, you know, and just see how they feel coming on and just really chat about, you know, news of science fiction, what's happened, you know, say the Hugo's come up and the Hugo's win, have a little bit chat about that, chat about, say, a book getting launched, just a general light chit chat, do you know what I mean? But like I say, it'll be on its own RSS feed, so... You'll have to subscribe to it. But if you come over to Starships Over, you'll see the links there. That, you know, there's the top of the page. There's a tab there that'll take you to the page. Or there's a little picture on the right-hand side, the sofa notes. Click that. That'll take you through. You can subscribe through there. Whether you'll be able to subscribe straight away, Gareth says I've got to actually release a show. So I'm just going to re- basically put this little intro up again as a show and then, you know, put that out. And hopefully that will be iTunes will pick that feed up and then it'll be it'll be in iTunes ready to subscribe. So I hope you will come along and try out this new show. Like I say, guests, 
there will be, I'm hopefully going to try and get, you know, my inbox is just kind of littered with everyone in, you know, kind of sci-fi publishing industry, you know, from writers, publishers, bloggers. So hopefully, along with, you know, a few guests off Starship Sova, going to get people like, say, well, I've asked actually Jeremiah Talbot, you know, executive editor over at the Skate Pod there now to kind of come on board and do one of the shows. He's keen as out, so that'll be nice. Godzilla, he's going to come over, you know, and it just depends, different ones, you know, I'll just kind of send emails out to people, and we'll just, I'll just get them on Skype, and we'll just, like say, going to record it hopefully on a Friday of, like, the events that have happened that week, and release it on a sad day. As simple as that. I hope you will come over too, Sofanauts. So I think we better just dip into some Puri. Galaxy in a Matchbox by G.O. Clark. She keeps a luminous spiral galaxy in a common cardboard matchbox. As princess of space and time, it is her privilege. After sunset, she takes it out and very carefully lights the sacred candle. Its flame moves her in ways known only to her clan. Those who watch over her talk of light years and question her true identity. She watches their lips move, but sees only silence. The matchbox is stored in the desk with infinite drawers, keyed to her aura. Its secret best kept pocketed, camouflaged with card tricks. To her keepers, a matchbox is but a simple reality. To her, the dowry from a dying world. There you go. There will be a link on to G.U. Clark's site. Do pop over. And a big thank you to Julie Davis for the narration. Julie, thank you so much. Don't forget Julie Davis's site, Forgotten Classics. I will put a link on from the website. So, you had part one. Now Hyperion part two, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh. Fred, and guess what? I have not listened to this. All with them nebulas and everything like that. You know, I was mentioned a couple of weeks ago that... It would be nice if sometimes someone did a show for me where I could listen to it. I haven't listened to Fred's review, so I'm dying to now, you know. So, Fred, tell me and tell everyone. Hyperion Part 2, sir. Hi, this is Fred Heimbaugh. Tony tasked me with recording reviews of Dan Simmons' books Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion. Today I complete my task by summarizing briefly the second book, then giving a few reactions I had to the two-book series as a whole. This is the purpose with which I come to you, broadcasting from my command center in its geosynchronous orbit, feeding candied figs to my pet albino Ewok, even as I am fed candied figs by my female valet who is wearing a jumpsuit made out of tinfoil. Uh, at least that's how it looks, but it's a little hard to see because of all the opium smoke. A while back I read and really enjoyed Dan Simmons' Ilium Olympus cycle, which is really one novel in two volumes. Dan Simmons loves to write books in pairs. The Hyperion Saga is completed by another pair of books, Endymion and Rise of Endymion, and he also loves literary heroes also in pairs. In Ilium Olympus, the wordy wonders were Shakespeare and Proust, who are discussed at length by two characters, cyborgs from the moons of Jupiter. In Hyperion, it's Keats and, to a lesser extent, Chaucer who get the treatment. Hyperion is modeled on Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, 
A pilgrimage serves as a framing story in which each pilgrim tells a tale. There are a few other similarities between the Ilium and Hyperion series, more superficial and yet striking. Both have subplots about tiny black holes manufactured with malicious intent to destroy the Earth. Both feature rides in tramways. In Olympus, the tramway is suspended from a series of full-size replicas of the Eiffel Tower. Both are concerned with humans gradually waking up to the threat posed by post-human or post-singularity powers and overthrowing them. Both have tribes of lovable, tree-dwelling teddy bears called Ewoks. No, 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 wait, I made that one up. Each pair has an impressively strong and tight first book that make you want badly to read the second, which somehow cannot quite live up to the first. If this last critique sounds negative, please don't take it that way. Both sets are so stuffed with fascinating original details, you won't care. If you liked one pair, you should read the other. Simmons' love and knowledge of literary history is his strength. It gives his books a gravitas that refutes sci-fi's reputation for pulpy sensationalism and becomes a device by which multiple plot lines and themes may be woven together. It is also Simmons' greatest weakness. Because the author is a lit geek, many of his characters are also. They quote old authors at a frequency that is jarring. Furthermore, there's always a heavy emphasis on authors in or before our time, and a loss of believability if authors are mentioned who come from our future. This flaw, this self-defeating attempt to create realism by sampling history from both sides of our present, always reminds me of those scenes in Star Trek where Spock would lecture Kirk about humanity's violent streak. Your World War I, with its 37 million dead, your World War II, with its 70 million dead, and your World War III, with its 600 million dead. If you heard my previous review of Hyperion, you'll remember there were seven pilgrims, each of whom told of an encounter with the terrible chrome-spiked Shrike and his odd hangout, the Time Tombs. Six of those tales made up the bulk of the first book. A seventh pilgrim, Het Mastim, disappeared before he could tell his tale. When we last saw our six pilgrim heroes, they were approaching the time tombs literally hand in hand and singing, We're off to see the wizard. Literally. An ending I found not credible. So what happened to Het Mestine? He is found by the others near the time tombs, badly wounded. He gets to babble something about the Shrike's tree of pain, but he dies before he can say or do anything conclusive. Although his fellow Templars figure prominently in the plot, especially in a gripping scene where their beautiful forested home, called God's Grove, suffers a terrible fate. Het Mastin himself never gets the attention the first book leads us to expect he will get. Having arrived at the Time Tombs, the six remaining pilgrims have a series of adventures, finding a hidden passageway, battling the Shrike, finding the Shrike's Tree of Pain, spending time impaled on the Tree of Pain, having conversations with fellow impalees on the Tree of Pain, leaving the time tombs on errands, coming back, etc., etc. The total effect of all these activities on the reader 
amounts to less than the sum of the parts. My sense was that I didn't know exactly what to expect from the tombs. In terms of the physics and metaphysics, I didn't know what the rules were, and neither did the pilgrims. It's no crime if a character in a novel has no clear plan. But what about the author? This is what makes The Fall of Hyperion a bit of a letdown, just a bit, compared to the first, very tautly written book. These passages made me suspect that the pilgrims are simply killing time until the battle with the ousters reached its climax. Wait, did someone mention ousters? This is where the second book's interest lies, those mysterious post-humans who have re-engineered themselves for deep space living, who got little attention in the first book. Their true relationship to conventional humans and the hegemony, the government of the conventional humans, is the big story of the second book. That and the machinations of the Technocore, which is the mysterious collective of artificial intelligences that were initiated by humans but whom have taken off on their own. We find out the Technocore is turning against the humans with whom they have lived symbiotically, and they are pursuing their big project to create the ultimate intelligence, which is essentially God. We learn this when Lamia Braun and her sort of resurrected lover Johnny enter the Technocore and talk to an AI friendly to humans, Uman. I've learned that this name comes from a famous Zen master, and indeed the Uman of the Technocore loves to speak in koans, which means anyone who approaches him needs to come ready to solve word puzzles. The best-known koan is the one that asks, What is the sound of one hand clapping? My personal favorite is the one that asks, If an Ewok in the middle of a forest is struck by a flaming piece of Death Star debris and no one hears it scream, did it make a sound? Okay, whatever. Uh, the Coens do serve to reinforce the enigmatic and spooky role Uman plays in the story. To further communicate Uman's remote inscrutability as a vastly advanced AI, Simmons experiments with odd syntax and punctuation. Uman's sentences are divided by backslashes and laid out in short lines like poetry. This technique is risky, but it really worked for me as I got into it. You can't help but hear Uman's words in your head as a reverberating oracular earthquake. Ooh, I like that word, oracular. Sadly, I also formed a mental picture of Uman that was based on the towering, po-faced master controller from the bold and risky, yet irredeemably silly Tron movie, which I just so happened to have seen for the first time ever a few months ago. Uman is a towering figure who reveals much. This is an unforgettable scene in the book. When the end of the book approaches, the pace picks up. A desperate war is fought, and desperate decisions are made. Father Paul Dure returns, which undermines the satisfying death he died in the first book. Satisfying for him and us. But the guy is so cool you don't mind. Dure discovers evidence of a monstrous crime in a trip to the future. Then he gets elected Pope. And it is hinted that under Dure, a transformed Catholic church will experience a renaissance. The repulsive Shrike Church bishops don't fare so well. Dan Simmons loves to make villains out of religious bureaucrats, this being typical of sci-fi. 
What's unusual here is his portrait of the Catholic Church as benign, albeit moribund, and claiming one of the book's truly impressive figures. Simmons makes it clear whose bad guys are every time he describes the smug bishops of the Shrike Church as wearing gold rings on their pudgy fingers. Meanwhile, of the pilgrims, only Rachel, the girl who was aging backwards, gets an unambiguously triumphal ending. As I wind up my review, I expect there's a Hyperion fan who's spitting his opium pipe halfway across the den he has sprawled in as he listens to this on his iPod and realizes I am not going to describe some truly beautiful or masterful passage from Fall of Hyperion that was his personal favorite. To him I say, sorry, and I know... This is an unwieldy novel, difficult to hold in one's head. Even after glancing at the plot summary on Wikipedia, I feel like I've left much forgotten or glossed over. Let me just mention a few of the things I wish I could have described. The labyrinthine worlds, the tree ships of the Templars, the alien erg that generates a force field, the Mobius Cube, the river Tethys, whose farcaster-linked sections flow through multiple worlds, and the super-advanced technology of the ousters. I only hope my admission of inadequacy as a reviewer prompts you to go read Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion yourself so that you can find out what you've been missing. Uh, oh, oh, no. My, my albino Ewok just threw up all over my valet's tinfoil jumpsuit. I better go. See you later. There you go, Fred. Thank you very much. And Fred has kindly promised, haven't you, Fred? You have promised to do some more of these audio fact little articles for Starship Sova. And I will get, I'll certainly get Fred on as a guest or in the Sofa Notes as well. That would be fantastic. And if you haven't, you know, pop over to the forums because Fred had a great little article on the forums for the Nebula Awards. Didn't like any one of them. Couldn't understand why they would even be picked for publication. Never mind awards do you agree with fred or not come over to the forums check it out so today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com and the leading provider in spoken word entertainment audible has over thirty-five thousand titles to be choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere just like starship sofa so log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And if you go over now, there is that Metropolis. That is free, the Hugo-nominated audiobook. You can get that free there now. But I've just actually was on the Audible site and it's been upgraded. And what a great site there that it is now. And I'm, into, I'm actually looking at it there now, the Audible Frontiers. These are kind of their own kind of publication ones. Some great stuff there, you know, and I have always, and I've never listened to it, I am itching to get the James Blish story, A Case of Conscience, you know, in there as well, The Devil's Eye, Jack McDivitt, Storm from the Shadows, David Webber, you've got Alan Steele, Coyote Horizon, we've got another Alan Steele short story coming soon as well, so do look out for that. Gregory Frost, he's been on the show, he's got in there Shadow Bridge, and what Fred just talked about there, The Fall of Hyperion, you've got Hyperion in there. And I've listened to both of them, and they are just stunning productions, to be quite honest. So, you know, you, you sign up to Audible, you get your first one free. You can pick anything, but, you know, there's some great ones out there as well. So 
you know what I mean? And when, like, these are kind of productions, these are the highest quality. And Audible's changed it now, so you can download these in total, like, 128 MP3 cracking quality. So do pop over to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. So moving on to the main fiction, which is Karen Joy Fowler. Karen Joy Fowler's The Jane Austen Book Club spent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list and was a New York Times notable book. Fowler's previous novel, Sister Noon, was a finalist for the 2001 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. The debut novel, Sarah Cannery, was a New York Times notable book, as was her second novel, The Sweetheart Season. The Sarah Cannery novel was also shortlisted for the Irish Times International Fiction Prize. Her last book, Wit's End, came out in April 2008. Today's story is narrated by Kate Baker, who, hats off, Kate has done a fantastic job not only narrating this story, but designing Starships Over. I am so proud of this site now. It's fantastic. Kate, thank you so much. Do pop over to Kate's site. There's a link on front of the Starship Sofa. She might even tinker with your site. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Standing Room Only by Karen Joy Fowler As narrated by Kate Baker On Good Friday, 1865, Washington, D.C. was crowded with tourists and revelers. Even Willard's, which claimed to be the largest hotel in the country, with room for 1,200 guests, had been booked to capacity. Its lobbies and sitting rooms were hot with bodies. Gaslight hissed from golden chandeliers, spilled over the doorman's uniforms of black and maroon. Many of the revelers were women. In 1865, women were admired for their stoutness and went anywhere they could fit their hoop skirts. The women at Willard's wore garishly colored dresses with enormous skirts and resembled great inverted tulips. The men were in swallow coats. Outside it was almost spring. The forsythia bloomed, dusting the city with yellow. Weeds leapt up in the public parks. The roads melted to mud. Pigs roamed like dogs about the city, and dead cats by the dozens floated in the sewers and perfumed the rooms of the White House itself. The Metropolitan Hotel contained an especially rowdy group of celebrants from Baltimore, who passed the night of April 13th toasting everything under the sun. They resurrected on the morning of the 14th, pale and spent, surrounded by broken glass and sporting bruises they couldn't remember getting. It was the last day of Lent. The war was officially over except for the Joseph Johnston's Confederate Army and some action out west. The citizens of Washington, D.C. still began each morning reading the daily death list. If anything, this task had taken on an added urgency. To lose someone you love now with the rest of the city madly, if grimly celebrating, would be unendurable. The guests in Mary Surratt's boarding house began the day with a breakfast of steak, eggs, and ham, oysters, grits, and whiskey. Mary's 17-year-old daughter, Anna, was in love with John Wilkes Booth. She had a picture of him hidden in the sitting room, behind a lithograph entitled Morning, Noon, and Night. She helped her mother clear the table, and she noticed with a sharp and unreasonable disapproval that one of the two new boarders, one of the men who only last night had been given a room, was staring at her mother. Mary Surratt was neither a pretty woman nor a clever one, nor was she young. 
Anna was too much of a romantic, too star and stage-struck to approve. It was one thing to lie awake at night in her attic bedroom thinking of J.W. It was another to imagine her mother playing any part in such feelings. Anna's brother John once told her that five years ago, a woman named Henrietta Irving had tried to stab Booth with a knife. Failing, she'd thrust the blade into her own chest instead— He seemed to be under the impression that this story would bring Anna to her senses. It had, as anyone could have predicted, the opposite effect. Anna had also heard rumors that Booth kept a woman in a house of prostitution near the White House. And once she had seen a picture of paper on which Booth had been composing a poem, you could make out the final version. Now, in this hour that we part, I will ask to be forgotten, never. But in thy pure and guileless heart, consider me thy friend, dear Eva. Anna would sit in the parlor while her mother dozed and pretend she was the first of these women, and if she tired of that, she would sometimes dare to pretend she was the second, but most often she liked to imagine herself the third. Flirtations were common and serious, and the women in Washington worked hard at them. A war in the distance always provided a rich context of desperation, while at the same time granting women a bit of extra freedom. They might quite enjoy it, if the price they paid were anything but their sons. The new men had hardly touched their food, cutting away the fatty parts of the meat and leaving them in a glistening, greasy, wasteful pile. They'd finished the whiskey but made faces while they drank. Anna had resented the compliment of their eyes and, paradoxically, now resented the insult of their plates. Her mother set a good table. In fact, Anna did not like them and hoped that they would not be staying. She had often seen men outside the Surratt boarding house lately, men who busied themselves in unpersuasive activities when she passed them. She connected these new men to those, and she was perspicacious enough to blame their boarder, Louis Weichmann, for the lot of them, without ever knowing the extent to which she was right. She had lived for the past year in a Confederate household in the heart of Washington. Everyone around her had secrets. She had grown quite used to this. Weichmann was a permanent guest at the Surratt boarding house. He was a fat, friendly man who worked in the office of the Commissary General of Prisons and shared John Surratt's bedroom. Secrets were what Weichmann traded in. He provided John, who was a courier for the Confederacy, with substance for his covert messages south. But then, Weichmann had also, on a whim, sometime in March, told the clerks in the office that a sessious plot was being hashed against the president in the very house where he roomed. It created more interest than he had anticipated. He was called into the office of Captain McDavid and interviewed at length. As a result, the Surratt boarding house was under surveillance from March through April, although it was an odd fact that no records of the surveillance or the interview could be found later. Anna would surely have enjoyed knowing this. She liked attention as much as most young girls, and this was the backdrop of a romance. Instead, all she could see was that something was up and that her pious, simple mother was part of it. The new guest, the one who talked the most, spoke with a strange lisp, and Anna didn't like this either. She stepped smoothly between the men to pick up their plates. She used the excuse of a letter from her brother to go out directly after breakfast. "'Mama,' she said, I'll just take John's letter to poor Miss Ward. Just as her brother enjoyed discouraging her own romantic inclinations, 
She made it her business to discourage the affections of Miss Ward with regard to him. Calling on Miss Ward with the letter would look like a kindness, but it would make the point that Miss Ward had not gotten a letter herself. Besides, Booth was in town. If Anna was outside, she might see him again. The 13th had been beautiful, but the weather on the 14th was equal parts mud and wind. The wind blew bits of Anna's hair loose and tangled them up with the fringe of her shawl. Around the treasury building, she stopped to watch a carriage sunk in the mud all the way up to the axle. The horses, a matched pair of blacks, were rescued first. Then planks were laid across the top of the mud for the occupants. They debarked, a man and a woman, the woman unfashionably thin and laughing giddily as with every unsteady step her hoop swung and unbalanced her, first this way and then that. She clutched the man's arm and screamed when a pig burrowed past her, then laughed again at even a higher pitch. The man stumbled into the mire when she grabbed him, and this made her laugh too. The man's clothing was very fine, although now quite speckled with mud. A crowd gathered to watch the woman. The attention made her helpless with laughter. The war had ended, Anna thought, and everyone had gone simultaneously mad. She was not the only one to think so. It was the subject of newspaper editorials and barroom speeches. The city is disorderly with men who are celebrating too hilariously, the President's day guard, William Crook, had written just yesterday. The sun came out, but only in a perfunctory, pale fashion. Her visit to Miss Ward was spoiled by the fact that John had sent a letter there as well. Miss Ward obviously enjoyed telling Anna so. She was very nearsighted, and she held the letter right up to her eyes to read it. John had recently fled to Canada. With the war over, there was every reason to expect he would come home, even if neither letter said so. There was more news, and Miss Ward preened while she delivered it. Bessie Hale is being taken to Spain, much against her will, Miss Ward said. Bessie was the daughter of ex-Senator John P. Hale. Her father hoped that a change of scenery would help pretty Miss Bessie conquer her infatuation for John Wilkes Booth. Miss Ward, whom no one, including Anna's brother, thought was pretty, was laughing at her. Mr. Hale does not want an actor in the family, Miss Ward said, and Anna regretted the generous impulse that had sent her all the way across town on such a gloomy day. Wilkes Booth is back in Washington, Miss Ward finished, and Anna was at least able to say that she knew this. He had called on them only yesterday. She left the wards with the barest of goodbyes. Louis Vikeman passed her on the street, stopping for a courteous greeting, although they had just seen each other at breakfast. It was now about 10 a.m. Vikeman was on his way to church. Among the many secrets he knew was Anna's. I saw John Wilkes Booth in the barber shop this morning, he told her, with a crowd watching his every move. Anna raised her head. Mr. Booth is a famous thespian. Naturally, people admire him. She flattered herself that she knew J.W. a little better than these idolaters did. The last time her brother had brought Booth home, he'd followed Anna out to the kitchen. She'd had her back to the door, washing plates. Suddenly, she could feel that he was there. How could she have known that? The back of her neck grew hot, and when she turned, sure enough, there he was, leaning against the door jamb, studying his nails. 
Do you believe our fates are already written? Booth asked her. He stepped into the kitchen. I had my palm read once by a gypsy. She said I would come to a bad end. She said it was the worst palm she had ever seen. He held his hand out for her to take. She said she wished she hadn't even seen it, he whispered, and then he drew back quickly as her mother entered before she could bend over the hand herself, reassure him with a different reading, before she could even touch him. J.W. isn't satisfied with acting, her brother had told her once. He yearns for greatness on the stage of history. And if her mother hadn't interrupted, if Anna had two seconds to herself with him, this is the reading she would have done. She would have promised him greatness. Mr. Booth was on his way to Ford's Theater to pick up his mail, Blakeman said with a wink. It was an ambiguous wink. It might have meant only that Weichmann remembered what a first love was like. It might have suggested he knew the use she would make of such information. Two regiments were returning to Washington from Virginia. They were out of step and out of breath, covered with dust. Anna drew a handkerchief from her sleeve and waved it at them. Other women were doing the same. A crowd gathered. A vendor came through the crowd, selling oysters. A man in a tight-fitting coat stopped him. He had a disreputable look, a bad haircut with long sideburns. He pulled a handful of coins from one pocket and stared at them stupidly. He was drunk. The vendor had to reach into his hand and pick out what he was owed. Filthy place, the man next to the drunk man said. I really can't bear the smell. I can't eat. Don't expect me to sleep in that flea-infested hotel another night. He left abruptly, colliding with Anna's arm, forcing her to take a step or two. Excuse me, he said without stopping, and there was nothing penitent or apologetic in his tone. He didn't even seem to see her. Since he had forced her to start, Anna continued to walk. She didn't even know she was going to Ford's Theater until she turned onto 11th Street. It was a bad idea, but she couldn't seem to help herself. She began to walk faster. No tickets, miss, James R. Ford told her before she could open her mouth. She was not the only one there. A small crowd of people stood at the theater door. Absolutely sold out. It's because the president and General Grant will be attending. James Ford held an American flag in his arms. He raised it. I'm just decorating the president's box. It was the last night of a lackluster run. He would never have guessed they would sell every seat. He thought Anna's face showed disappointment. He was happy himself, and it made him kind. They're rehearsing inside, he told her, for General Grant. You just go on in for a peek. He opened the doors, and she entered. Three women and a man came with her. Anna had never seen any of the others before, but supposed they were friends of Mr. Ford's. They forced themselves to the doors beside her and then sat next to her in the straight-back cane chairs just back from the stage. Laura Keene herself stood in the wings awaiting her entrance. The curtain was pulled back so that Anna could see her. Her cheeks were round with rouge. The stage was not deep. Mrs. Mount Chessington stood on it with her daughter Augusta and Asia Trenchard. All I crave is affection, Augusta was saying. She shimmered with insincerity. Anna repeated the lines to herself. She imagined herself as an actress married to J.W., courted by him daily before an audience of a thousand and a hundred different rows. 
They would play the love scenes over and over again, each one as true as the last. She would hardly know where her real and imaginary lives diverged. She didn't suppose there was much money to be made, but even to pretend to be rich seemed like happiness to her. Augusta was willing to be poor if she was loved. Now I've no fortune, Aja said to her in response, but I'm biling over with affections, which I'm ready to pour out all over you like applesauce over roast pork. The women exited. He was alone on the stage. Anna could see Laura Keene mouthing his line just as he spoke it. The woman seated next to her surprised her by whispering it aloud as well. Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sock-dologizing old man-trap, the three of them said. Anna turned to her seatmate, who stared back. Her accent, Anna thought, had been English. Don't you just love theater? She asked Anna in a whisper. Then her face changed. She was looking at something above Anna's head. Anna looked, too. Now she understood the woman's expression. John Wilkes Booth was standing in the presidential box staring down on the actor. Anna rose. Her seatmate caught her arm. She was considerably older than Anna, but not enough so that Anna could entirely dismiss her possible impact on Booth. Do you know him? the woman asked. He's a friend of my brother's. Anna had no intention of introducing them. She tried to edge away, but the woman still held her. My name is Cassie Strykman. Anna Surratt. There was a quick sideways movement in the woman's eyes. Are you related to Mary, Surratt? She's my mother. Anna began to feel just a bit of concern. So many people interested in her dull, sad mother. Anna tried to shake loose and found to her surprise that she couldn't. The woman would not let go. I've heard of the boarding house, Mrs. Strykman said. It was a courtesy to think of her as a married woman. It was more of a courtesy than she deserved. Anna looked up at the box again. Booth was already gone. Let me go, she told Mrs. Strykman so loudly that Laura Keene herself heard, so forcefully that Mrs. Strykman finally did so. Anna left the theater. The streets were crowded and she could not see Booth anywhere. Instead, as she stood on the bricks, looking left and then right, Mrs. Strykman caught up with her. Are you going home? Might we walk along? No, I have errands, Anna said. She walked quickly away. She was cross now because she had hoped to stay and look for Booth, who must be still close by, but Mrs. Strykman had made her too uneasy. She looked back at once. Mrs. Strykman stood in the little circle of her friends, talking animatedly. She gestured with her hands like a European. Anna saw Booth nowhere. She went back along the streets to St. Patrick's Church in search of her mother. It was noon and the air was warm in spite of the colorless sun. Inside the church, her mother knelt in the pew and prayed noisily. Anna slipped in beside her. This is the moment, her mother whispered. She reached out and took Anna's hand, gripped it tightly enough to hurt. Her mother's eyes brightened with tears. This is the moment they nailed him to the cross, she said. There was a purple cloth over the crucifix. The pallid sunlight flowed into the church. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The colored glass. Across town, a group of men had gathered in the Kirkwood bar and were entertaining themselves by buying drinks for George Atzerat. Atzerat was one of Booth's co-conspirators. His assignment for the day given to him by Booth was to kidnap the vice president. He was already so drunk he couldn't stand. Would you say that the vice president is a brave man? He asked, and they laughed at him. He didn't mind being laughed at. It struck him as a bit funny himself. He wouldn't carry a firearm, would he? I mean, why would he? Atzerat said. Are there ever soldiers with him? That nigger who watches him eat, is is he there all the time? Have another drink, they told him, laughing, on us, and you couldn't get insulted at that. Anna and her mother returned to the boarding house. Mary Surratt had rented a carriage and was going into the country. Mr. Weichman will drive me, she told her daughter, and Mr. Nothy owed her money that they desperately needed. Mary Surratt was going to collect it. But just as she was leaving, Booth appeared. He took her mother's arm, drew her to the parlor. Anna felt her heart stop and then start again, faster. Mary, I must talk to you, he said to her mother, whispering. Intimate. Mary. He didn't look at Anna at all and didn't speak again until she left the room. She would have stayed outside the door to hear whatever she could, but Louis Weichmann had the same idea. They exchanged one cross look, then each left the hallway. Anna went up the stairs to her bedroom. She knew the moment Booth went. She liked to feel that this was because they had a connection, something unexplainable, something preordained. But in fact, she could hear the door. He went without asking to see her. She moved to the small window to watch him leave. He did not stop to glance up. He mounted a black horse, tipped his hat to her mother. Her mother boarded a hired carriage, leaning on Mr. Weichmann's hand. She held a parcel under her arm. Anna had never seen it before. It was flat and round and wrapped in newspaper. Anna thought it was a gift from Booth. It made her envious. Later, at her mother's trial, Anna would hear that the package had contained a set of field glasses. 
A man named Lloyd would testify that Mary Surratt had delivered them to him and also had given him instructions from Booth regarding guns. It was the single most damaging evidence against her. At her brother's trial, Lloyd would recant everything but the field glasses. He was, he now said, too drunk at the time to remember what Mrs. Surratt had told him. He had never remembered. The prosecution had compelled his earlier testimony through threats. This revision would come two years after Mary Surratt had been hanged. Anna stood at the window a long time, pretending that Booth might return with just such a present for her. John Wilkes Booth passed George Azerot on the street at 5 p.m. Booth was on horseback. He told Azerot that he had changed his mind about the kidnapping. He now wanted the vice president killed. At 10.15 or thereabouts, I've learned that Johnson is a very brave man, Azerot told him. And you are not, Booth agreed. But you're in too deep to back out now. He rode away. Booth was carrying in his pocket a letter to the editor of the National Intelligencer. In it, he recounted the reasons for Lincoln's death. He had signed his own name, but also that of George Atzerodt. The men who worked with Atzerodt once said he was a man you could insult and he would take no offense. It was the kindest thing they could think of to say. Three men from the Kirkwood bar appeared and took Atzerodt by the arms. Let's find another bar, they suggested. We have hours and hours yet before the night is over. Eat, drink, be merry. At 6 p.m., John Wilkes Booth gave the letter to John Matthews, an actor, asking him to deliver it the next day. I'll be out of town, or I would deliver it myself, he explained. A group of Confederate officers marched down Pennsylvania Avenue, where John Wilkes Booth could see them. They were unaccompanied. They were turning themselves in. It was the submissiveness of it that struck Booth the hardest. A man can meet his fate or make it, he told Matthews. A man can rise to the occasion or fall beneath it. At sunset, a man called Peanut John lit the big glass globe at the entrance to Ford's Theater. Inside, the presidential box had been decorated with borrowed flags and bunting. The door into the box had been forced some weeks ago in an unrelated incident and could no longer be locked. It was early evening when Mary Surratt returned home. Her financial affairs were still unsettled. Mr. Nothy had not even shown up at their meeting. She kissed her daughter. If Mr. Nothy will not pay us what he owes, she said, I can't think of what we'll do next. I can't see a way ahead for us. Your brother must come home. She went into the kitchen to oversee the preparations for dinner. Anna went in to help. Since the afternoon, since the moment Booth had not spoken to her, she had been overcome with unhappiness. It had not lessened in a bit in the last hours. She now doubted it ever would. She cut the roast into slices. It bled beneath her knife, and she thought of Henrietta Irving's white skin and the red heart beating underneath. She could understand Henrietta Irving perfectly. All I crave is affection, she said to herself, and the honest truth of the sediment so softened her into tears. Perhaps she could survive the rest of her life if she played it this way, scene by scene. She held the knife up, watched the blood slide down the blade, and this was dramatic and fit her Shakespearean mood. 
She felt a chill, and when she turned around, one of the new boarders was leaning against the door jamb, watching her mother. We're not ready yet, she told him crossly. He'd given her a start. He vanished back into the parlor. Once again, the new guests hardly ate. Louis Weichmann finished his food with many elegant compliments. His testimony in court would damage Mary Surratt almost as much as Lloyd's. He would say that she seemed uneasy that night, unsettled, although none of her other boarders saw this. After dinner, Mary Surratt went through the house, turning off the kerosene lights one by one. Anna took a glass of wine and went to sleep immediately. She dreamed deeply, but her heartbreak woke her again only an hour or so later. It stabbed at her lightly from the inside when she breathed. She could see John Wilkes Booth as clearly as if he were in the room with her. I am the most famous man in America, he said. He held out his hand, beckoned to her. Downstairs, she heard the front door open and close. She rose and looked out the window just as she had done that afternoon. Many people, far too many people, were on the street. They were all walking in the same direction. One of them was George Atzerodt. Hours before, he had abandoned his knife, but he too would die along with Mary Surratt. He had gone too far to back out. He walked with his hands over the shoulders of the two dark-haired men. One of them looked up. He was of a race Anna had never seen before. The new boarders joined the crowd. Anna could see them when they passed out from under the porch overhang. Something big was happening, something big enough to overwhelm her own hurt feelings. Anna dressed slowly and then quickly and more quickly. I live, she thought, in the most wondrous of times. Here was the proof. She was still unhappy, but she was also excited. She moved quietly past her mother's door. The flow of people took her down several blocks. She was taking her last walk again, only backwards, like a ribbon uncoiling. She went past St. Patrick's Church down 11th Street. The crowd ended at Ford's Theater and thickened there. Anna was jostled. To her left, she recognized the woman from the carriage, the laughing woman, though she wasn't laughing now. Someone stepped on Anna's hoop skirt, and she heard it snap. Someone struck her in the back of the head with an elbow. Be quiet, someone admonished someone else. We'll miss it. Someone took hold of her arm. It was so crowded she couldn't even turn to see, but she heard the voice of Cassie Strykman. I had tickets and everything, Mrs. Strykman said angrily. Do you believe that? I can't even get to the door. It's almost ten o'clock and I had tickets. Can my group please stay together, a woman toward the front asked. Let's not lose anyone. And then she spoke again in a language Anna did not know. It didn't seem a good show, Anna said to Mrs. Strykman, a comedy and not very funny. Mrs. Strykman twisted into the space next to her. That was just a rehearsal. The reviews are incredible, and you won't believe the waiting list. Years, centuries, I'll never have tickets again. She took a deep, calming breath. At least you're here, dear. That's something I couldn't have expected. That makes it very real, and... She pressed Anna's arm. If it helps in any way, you must tell yourself later that there's nothing you could have done to make it come out differently. Everything that will happen has already happened. It won't be changed. Will I get what I want?
Anna asked her. She could not keep the brightness of hope from her voice. Clearly she was part of something enormous, something memorable. How many people could say that? I don't know what you want, Mrs. Strykman answered. She had an uneasy look. I didn't get what I wanted, she added. Even though I had tickets. Good God! People getting what they want. That's not the history of the world, is it? Will everyone please be quiet, someone behind Anna said. Those of us in the back can't hear a thing. Mrs. Strykman began to cry, which surprised Anna very much. I'm such a sap, Mrs. Strykman said apologetically. Things really get to me. She put her arm around Anna. All I want, Anna began, but a man to her right hushed her angrily. Shut up, he said, as if we came all this way to listen to you. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Miss Fowler's. It's a big thank you to Karen Joy Fowler, and we have another story by Karen Joy Fowler coming very soon as well. Narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Kate, thank you so much for the narration. Again, do pop over to Kate's site. Say a big thank you when you're there for fixing up Starship Sova, making it look a pretty little girl. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much. So next up, we have a little review by Amy H. Sturgis, all about the short story, The Machine Stops, a hundred years since it was wrote. Amy. Hello, Sophonauts. Today, for our look back into genre history, I would like to focus on a short story that was important at the time it was published and remains important today, and in fact, may be more relevant than ever. Tony mentioned this short story back in an episode of Starship Sofa in which he discussed computers and science fiction, but I think it's worth a longer exploration, especially because this year it is celebrating its 100th birthday. I am referring to the influential story, The Machine Stops, by E.M. Forster. Let's get started by talking about E.M. Forster himself. When you think of E.M. Forster, if you think of E.M. Forster, you probably don't think about science fiction. Forster was an English novelist. He also wrote biographies, travel literature, essays, and literary criticism, and even a libretto based on Billy Budd by Herman Melville. He was born in London on the 1st of January, 1879, and he lived until June 7, 1970, and in those intervening years had quite a prolific career. His best-known works are novels, which are still read and studied today. Significantly, each of them has been adapted into a feature film, in that sense, you may have heard of Forster, even if you haven't read his work. The most notable of his novels include Where Angels Fear to Tread, published in 1905, A Room with a View, published in 1908, Howard's End, published in 1910, A Passage to India, published in 1924, and Maurice, written in 1913-1914, but not published until 1971, after his death. Beneath all of his works runs an undercurrent of humanism that plays itself out primarily in Forster's interest in 
interpersonal communication and interpersonal relations. In some works, his focus is on class differences and the hypocrisies that come with that, the obstacles between people that arise because of class systems. He's also interested in divisions based on gender. He looks at sexuality, uh, particularly homosexuality in a predominantly heterosexual society. But again and again in his work, we see the recurring motif of obstacles that people place in between each other, some of which are surmountable, some of which are not. And this really defines his work. During his lifetime, his short stories were compiled in three major collections, The Celestial Omnibus and Other Stories in 1911, The Eternal Moment and Other Stories in 1928, and Collected Short Stories in 1947. After his death in 1972, The Life to Come and Other Stories was also published. The Machine Stops, his great work of science fiction, was first published in the Oxford and Cambridge Review in 1909, but it was republished in The Eternal Moment and Other Stories in 1928. It was eventually voted one of the best novellas up to 1965 and was included that year in the anthology Modern Short Stories, and in 1973 it was also included in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 2, which was edited by Ben Bova. Before I talk in depth about this story, I want to give you a sense of how influential it's been. In 1952, it was adapted and satirized as blobs in the very first issue of Mad Magazine. It was adapted for television in 1966 as part of the British science fiction anthology TV series Out of the Unknown. Playwright Eric Koble adapted the story to the stage, which in turn then became a radio production. In 1983, the British band Level 42 put out an album, Standing in the Light, which included a song called The Machine Stops, which refers directly to characters in the story. And Stephen Baxter, in his 2003 anthology Phase Space, in the story Glass Earth, Inc., refers specifically to the machine stops. Beyond these direct references, the long reach of the influence of the machine stops really can't be overstated. Its influence not only on literature, but also on film, for example. The futuristic dystopian world imagined in the 2008 animated science fiction film WALL-E, for example, owes a tremendous debt to the world described in The Machine Stops. Okay, so let's get down to the good stuff and talk about the story. The Machine Stops is about 12,000 words. I've already referred to it as both a short story and a novella. Neither of those categories were particularly relevant in 1909 when it was first published. You can classify it however you like. Forster wrote, and I quote, The Machine Stops is a reaction to one of the earlier heavens of H.G. Wells, end quote. In essence, Forster believed that Wells was much too optimistic about the future, and in particular, the impact of increased use of technology on the interaction between people. Now, of course, Wells himself wrote dystopias. Just think, for example, of The Sleeper Wakes. But let me put it this way. 
if Ian Forster and H.G. Wells were competing for the title of emo boy, E.M. Forster would win. The story takes place in what is presumably the distant future. Almost all people, supposedly, have lost the ability to live on the ruined surface of the earth, and so most of the population lives underground. This underground world is remarkable in its similarities to the world that we have today. For example, Forster anticipated innovations such as the television, video conferencing, virtual communities, and the internet, and even podcasting in a way. The way he describes the technology that allows individual people to live in cells, in small rooms that are completely maintained by the overarching, overruling machine, interacting through speakers and screens, but not person-to-person, not in intimate physical contact, not in each other's personal spaces at all, is quite extraordinary. I should note up front that this is not a case of big bad robot gone wrong, where the machine came and overthrew everything and set itself up as the leader. In fact, humanity has slowly and gradually, over a significant period of time, ceded its freedom and autonomy in exchange for the security and convenience that the machine provides. The story focuses around two main characters, Kuno, who's a bit of a rebel. He is a sensualist. He is desirous of original experience and original ideas, who explores and, in fact, makes his way to the surface of the earth. And Vashti, his mother, who lives on the other side of the world, who is very content in living the same life as most other people, trading second-hand ideas with people she'll never meet in person, and relying on the machine to see to all of her needs. Kuno contacts Vashti and tells her that he wants to see the surface of the earth, and he wants to encourage her to follow in his footsteps. She denounces him as essentially a heretic, In fact, for the sake of efficiency, the machine has slowly nurtured a dependence that borders on worship, so that, in fact, the machine is something of a deity, and reliance on the machine is something of a religion at this point. But then slowly, incrementally, the machine starts to break down, even as Kuno goes ahead with his explorations, and Vashti begins to realize that Kuno was right. There is more to the world than the machine. I won't tell you how it ends. It's such a fantastic read. But it is a tale of the machine stopping, an apocalyptic tale about the end of an entire way of life that has both tremendous pessimism about human nature. I don't think Forster's concern is nearly as much about the technology itself as it is about how easily Humans give up what is difficult and challenging and stimulating and worthwhile in order to be taken care of, to follow the path of least resistance. And yet Forster also leaves an out, a glimpse of hope that suggests that perhaps it's not too late for humanity to learn its lesson and to embrace all of the things that make us human and to keep machinery 
to keep industry, to keep technology in its place as a tool and not as a master. I'd like to read you a short excerpt just to give you a sense of how beautifully written and how powerful this story is. Just as a setup, this is between Kuno and his mother Vashti. In this world that Forster describes, travel is extremely rare. In part because every place on the planet is just like every other place, that is underground. Every place,、um, one town is just like another. Everyone is still in his or her cell,、um, experiencing the world through these viewing screens and speakers. So there's no cause to go from one place to another. Certainly not for human interaction, because that really doesn't happen. So Kuno's entire suggestion of travel is something of a novelty. So here is an excerpt from the machine stops. The airship barely takes two days to fly between me and you. I dislike airships. Why? I dislike seeing the horrible brown earth and the sea and the stars when it is dark. I get no ideas in an airship. I do not get them anywhere else. What kind of ideas can the air give you? He paused for an instant. Do you not know four big stars that form an oblong, and three stars close together in the middle of the oblong, and hanging from these stars, three other stars? No, I do not. I dislike the stars, but they give you an idea. How interesting! Tell me. I had an idea that they were like a man. I do not understand. The four big stars are the man's shoulders and his knees. The three stars in the middle are like the belts that men wore once, and the three stars hanging are like a sword. A sword? Men carried swords about with them to kill animals and other men. It does not strike me as a very good idea, but it is certainly original. When did it come to you first? In the airship. He broke off, and she fancied that he looked sad. She could not be sure, for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people, an idea that was good enough for all practical purposes. Vashti thought, the imponderable bloom declared by a discredited philosophy to be the actual essence of intercourse, was rightly ignored by the machine. Just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit, something good enough had long since been accepted by our race. The truth is, he continued, that I want to see these stars again. They are curious stars. I want to see them not from the airship, but from the surface of the earth, as our ancestors did thousands of years ago. I want to visit the surface of the earth. She was shocked again. Mother, you must come, if only to explain to me what is the harm of visiting the surface of the earth. No harm, she replied, controlling herself. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud. No life remains on it, and you would need a respirator, or the cold of the outer air would kill you. One dies immediately in the outer air. I know. Of course, I shall take all precautions. And besides, well, she considered and chose her words with care. Her son had a queer temper, and she wished to dissuade him from the expedition. It is contrary to the spirit of the age, she asserted.
Do you mean by that contrary to the machine? In a sense, but his image in the blue plate faded. Kuno, he had isolated himself. For a moment, Vashti felt lonely. Then she generated the light, and the sight of her room, flooded with radiance and studded with electric buttons, revived her. There were buttons and switches everywhere, buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There was the hot bath button, by pressure of which a basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the brim with a warm, deodorized liquid. There was the cold bath button. There was the button that produced literature. And there were, of course, the buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room, though it contained nothing, was in touch with all that she cared for in the world. So with this, I hope that you will explore and celebrate the short story or novella, however you'd like to term it, that really was a tremendous pioneer in science fiction, a dystopia that set the stage for so many others to come in the 20th century, a tale that anticipated technological advances a century ahead of its time, and a story that brought E.M. Forster's particular emphasis on humanism to science fiction. The Machine Stops is available several places online and is also available in an audio format from LibriVox.org. Happy 100th birthday to The Machine Stops. Amy, thank you so much. And I've dropped Amy, yes, I've dropped Amy an email, and she's agreed she'll be one of the guests on the Sofa Notes. So do look out for that. So slipping gently into new titles this week, we've got four new titles today and all by different publishers. One by Solaris, one by Orbit, one by Monkey Brain Press and one by Glance. Straight in there, Orbit, The Madness of Angels by Kate Griffin. And this is getting some loads of publicity at the minute. You know, this is one of their big hitters for this kind of this release of this year. Cover's great as well, or the cover I've got. I think it might be slightly different on the on the one that's out, because I've got one of those, you know, not for sale um, proof copy ones. But it's basically like a black background, and there's like London skyline in the distance, and it's all blue, and there's one of these kind of big archangel looking images in the front as well. And it's graffiti writing, and it's like you say, and the madness of angels is all in this like kind of blue, pale blue colour. It's really quite striking, to be quite honest. Little heads up there. You think you know the city? That's the tagline. There is in London much more than life. There is power. It ebbs and flows with the rhymes of the city. Makes runes from the alignments of ancient streets and hums with the rattle of trains and buses. It waxes and wanes with the patterns of the business day. There's a new kind of magic. Urban magic. Enter a London where magicians ride the last train, implore favours of the beggar king, and interpret the insane wisdom of the bag lady. Enter a London where beings of power soar with the pigeons, scrabble with the rats, and seek insight into the half-whispered madness of the blue electric angels. Enter the London of Matthew Swift, where rival sorcerers, hidden in plain sight, do battle for the very soul of the city. There you go. It is a nice size, chunky novel coming in at 471. Like I say, this is one of the kind of main ones, Orbit's big hitters for March, April. 
I'm not too sure what it will be priced at, but it's coming out as a paperback, I think. So, you know, round about $7.99, $8.99. I'm taking a stab. Madness of Angels, Kate Griffin. Next up is a book on the monkeybrainbooks.com. This is our good friend, Hal Duncan. Remember when I gave Hal an interview over in France and he was on about this like large novella that was coming out, Escape from Hell? Escape from Hell! <laughs> Well, this is it. I tried myself to this, to be quite honest. I bought it myself. Yes, not a freebie. It was priced. I'm just having a look at how much I paid. Yes, $9.95 US dollars. So, cheap as chips. And I quite like this. It's got a great cover on the front. It's basically, it's like a New York scene, like a, a painted New York scene. And you've got the city in the background. And you've got, you know, Hal Duncan says he was he had these certain people that were kind of in, in hell, basically. Now, it looks like you've got those characters at the forefront of the picture. Jeffrey Ford says, Hal Duncan's writing is fluent and powerful. He possesses an imagination capable of both conjuring worlds and capturing the intricacies of moments. Jeff Van der Meer says, A mind-blowing colossal talent whose impact will be felt for decades. I mean, actually, if you can remember when I was speaking to Hal Duncan, he, he was reading a tagline, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So when I was interviewing him, it must have been etched on his mind. A hitman, a hooker, a homosexual kid, and a hobo suicide make the ultimate prison break. Escape from hell itself. It's Escape from New York meets Jacob's Ladder. Four sinners die and go to hell. A twisted version of New York City, each to their own torment. The four meet and decide to make a break. Guns blazing. Before they manage to escape, they discover Lucifer himself kept prisoner by the angel Gabriel and in freeing him, find themselves facing the angel's wrath. But when news of their attempted escape gets out, the souls of the damned are transformed into a rotting mob, and all hell truly breaks loose. Hal Duncan is one of the rising stars of fantasy. His critically acclaimed novel, Vellum, one of the most talked-about debuts in recent memory, won the Spectrum Award and was nominated for the Crawford, British Fantasy Society and the World Fantasy Awards. There you go. Escape from Hell, Hal Duncan, $9.95, Monkey Brain Books. Next up is The Adamantine Palace by Stephen Diaz. This is from Galantz, $9.99 trade paperback. It is, comes in 365 pages. Dragons have long been a perennial favourite of the fantasy novel, but the Adamantine Palace returns these mythical beasts to their full destructive splendour and dangerous glory and sets them centre stage in a land ruled by twisted loyalties, scheming politics. The Adamantine Palace is playing host to an array of scheming characters, all vying for rule and control of a land where dragons are kept as submissive weapons of war by alchemist potions and spells. Without their sorcery, the dragons would return to their wild and lethal nature. Just as deadly are some of the players waiting to seize control of the throne. Among them, Prince Jahal, the devious, murderous central player in the politics of the novel. He's charming his way into the bed of his enemy's lover, but he's also playing the Queen Cerise and her daughter who he is wed. But a white dragon, a wedding gift from the Queen, who suspects Jahal's duplicity and intends to use it on her own gain, goes missing en route to the wedding. Away from the control of alchemy, just one dragon could rain fire on the realm, but the white dragon is far more dangerous than just a rogue player. 
It remembers a time when dragons ruled the humans, not the other way around. It realizes that the destruction of the alchemist is the only way to restore the dragons to their former power. And it knows that the only way to achieve its aims is to make the enslaved dragons remember their power, their fury, their rightful place. The Adamantine Palace is a thrill ride of a fantasy novel, extraordinarily paced, crammed with action and believable politics, peopled by a cast of devilishly dangerous characters, all with hidden agendas and buried secrets. Stephen Tears has crafted a fantasy novel that reads like a thriller where no one is safe from the concealed dagger of an enemy or the flaming fury of a dragon. The dragons are superbly drawn, evoking their size and power, while also capturing their grace in flight and their might in battle. Stephen Tears was born in South East England in 1968 and started writing from an early age. His interests include mathematics, kung fu, classic piano music, particle physics and computer role-playing games. He lives in the southeast of England in Chelmsford. Comes out, so it's out actually now. Came out Friday the 13th. <laughs> oh, Stephen, Stephen. Last one up is Xenopath, a Bengal station novel by Eric Brown. This one's from Solaris Books. And this one's actually taken my interest. Do you know what I mean? I think this would probably be my book of the week. Telepath Jeff Vaughan is working for a detective agency on the Bengal station, an exotic spaceport that dominates the ocean between India and Burma. When he is called out to the Connolly world of Mallory to investigate recent discoveries of alien corpses, but Vaughan is shaken to his core when he begins to uncover the heart of darkness at the centre of the Shia Lassiter colonial organisation. Praise for Eric Brown here, a gripping sci-fi noir tale that was sci-fi now. Stephen Baxter says, vivid, emotional, philosophical, this is a work to feed the mind, heart and soul. Post weird thoughts on Helix. A good old page turner, you start reading with no expectations and suddenly find yourself enthralled in it in such a way you read through the night without noticing. Priced at $7.99, it comes in around 414 pages. Little heads up here about the author. First story was published in Interzone in 1987, and he sold his first novel, Meridian Days, in 1992. He's won the British Science Fiction Award twice for his short stories, and has published 30 books, SF novels, collections, books for teenagers and young children. And he writes a monthly sci-fi review in the column for The Guardian. His latest books include the novella Starship Summer and the novel Kithani. You can find Eric Brown over at ericbrown.co.uk. And the cover is one of those kind of big, like you say, space station ports where the ship's zooming in from every different angle and it's all lovely kind of structured, you know, if this thing could ever get off the ground there. But yes, Xenopath Bengal Station by Eric Brown is my book of the week. So that's the four of them. Like I said, Eric Brown one there, Xenopath. The Adamantine Palace by Stephen Diaz. Hal Dungan's Escape from Hell and The Madness of the Angels, Kate Griffin. For to choose from. So that is Starship Sova this week, show number 72, put to bed. A lot of reading material or listening material I've had over the couple of weeks, which I apologise for, but it's been great to get those nebulas out and it's been great to get back into the swing of things with oral delights, especially now, you know, I'm like, the site's up and running and it's, it's just a dream to be quite honest to you, so I'm 
bit of a happy, chappy lad at the minute. Thank you so much. And everyone who's came over from, you know, who's been to the Nebula, who were looking at, listening to the Nebulas and who's enjoyed them and sticking around this time, you know, do consider subscribing to Starship Sova. You know, it is a fantastic community here. We, everyone just helps out and it's amazing. If you've got anything, you know, if you want to do, like, see a little fact article, drop us a line, starshipsova at gmail.com. If you're interested in art and you want to maybe do a cover for Starship Sova, again, drop us a line. Poetry, drop us a line. There is now some, we have eventually got guidelines on the site, so you have no excuse. Do pop over to the Sofa Notes as well and make sure you subscribe to the new show. The first official show is penciled in for the 18th of April. So do look out for that. Hopefully I will try and get a little, this introduction that I did at the beginning of the show, that'll be out as well so you can actually go over there and subscribe to the show. So do look out for that. And with the moving, I nearly forgot to mention this, with the moving of the show, we have like the monthly subscribers, the membership plus side of things. This is where you get the sanatorium shows. At the minute, I haven't been able to release a sanatorium show. And it's not because I kind of get my finger out. It's just because we're working out how to do it in this on this new site. So please, please bear with me and I will kind of get it out to you, you know, as soon as I can. You know, I've got so much to talk about, actually, on the, the sanatorium feed shows. And the things are backing up there. But... What I actually might be able to do is, or I'm told I can do it, I can put it out on this feed, but it would, it would go through iTunes and everyone would get it, but you'd have to, there's, it's like a password protected. Now, I don't know if I want to kind of go down that route where everyone's maybe not listening to every new show. You know, they're trying to get this thing and there's a password protected and I'll start getting emails and I've got to you know, apologize every time. So please bear with me with the sanatorium, working it out as soon as possible. So there you go. Show number 72, Karen Joy Fowler, Put the Bed. Let us know what you feel, do you know what I mean? About the website, about the design, about the new sofa notes show, you know. There will be a little, in the forums, there was, there's now like a little tab there, so you can, once them shows start going up and running, the forums will be the place for, you know, comment and discussion on, on the sofa notes. Let us know everything, you know. Even drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. On the new site now as well, there's a little tab button for Twitter. Quickest way to get in touch with us, drop us a message on Twitter. You know, instant. I get it. I get it on my phone. I get it on the internet. You know what I mean? It's just best way to get a hold of us. But please drop us an email. I love to have emails. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 